Letter 5, Weeks 6 to 8, the 25th of March, 2006. Hello, everyone. I am afraid that this letter will be a long one, so go and get a coffee. Tim Hortons, if you can swing it. I really miss my single singles. I just got back from Operation Sola Coel, Pashto for Peacemaker. I was deployed north of Kandahar City for the last two weeks. It was an incredibly challenging and rewarding experience. I feel like a poster child for why people should join the military. It was an amazing 15 days. Our mission was to move into isolated areas, either by foot or with our vehicles to meet with the local elders and conduct shiras. Shira is the Pashto word for meeting, or what we are calling leader engagements. Essentially, a group of 30 to 50 soldiers shows up on the outside of town. A smaller delegation of 5 to 10 soldiers and 3 to 5 Afghan National Army, ANA soldiers, goes forward under the remainder's watchful eye. They ask to speak to the village leader and or elders. I was honored to be invited to two different shiras. I really thought that the whole female thing would be a huge issue. It was, but not in the way that I thought it would be. The first time, it was an ANA commander who insisted that I be included. It was not that my leadership was excusing or excluding me. As an artillery officer, I was set in a position of overwatch, doing my job. The infantry officers were involved in the actual Shida. Anyway, I had to climb down from my precarious perch on the side of a mountain to drink chai. I am not sure how serious the discussion was before I got there. But once I arrived, it quickly centered on my marriage status. The big shock was not that I was in the army, but that I was married and in the army. The remainder of the discussion revolved around my inexplicable lack of children. The elder offered to go inside and get me some milk and bread, as diet was probably the issue. He was 67 and had two wives and several children under the age of 10. I said that my husband would definitely say that one wife was enough. He thought that was hysterical, and I was a hit. Working with the ANA and interpreters was eye-opening, to say the least. I am always astonished at the way that the military acts as a great equalizer. It doesn't matter where you are from, or how much money you had growing up, or the size of your family. It doesn't even matter what country you're from or your level of education. Once you're out with other soldiers, doing your thing, we are all the same. We respect each other based on ability, not background. We value a positive attitude, determination, and a good sense of humor. I think that my proudest moment over the last 15 days was after a 10-kilometer march with a 2,000-foot altitude gain. I was carrying approximately 100 pounds of kit. It was the most physically challenging thing that I have ever done. And I'm does crazy stuff. There were two points where I almost gave up. After we had done the climb up and were coming down through the valley, one of the ANA soldiers came up to me with an interpreter. The interpreter said, They want me to tell you that all of the ANA are talking about you because you have done this march with us. I said, Tell him that I am talking about them because they can run up and down the mountains. After this message was translated, the ANA soldier came up to me and said in broken English, better than my Pashto, I fight Taliban, I fight Al-Qaeda, you fight also. Dursi, Manana. Dursi is Pashto for very good, and Manana is Pashto for thank you. I'm Shannon Busta, and you're listening to For Her Country, a podcast produced by the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. Over the course of this series, we'll explore lessons in leadership from inspirational female leaders from across the Canadian Armed Forces, all in honor of fallen Canadian military hero, Captain Nicola Goddard. The clip you just heard is an excerpt from the fifth letter Nicola sent home while on deployment in Afghanistan. 
The first time I read this letter, I was nearly brought to tears by the mutual respect that Nicola and her ANA counterparts held for each other after that grueling climb over the mountain. For me, it really hit home that regardless of one's gender or country of origin, most of us really want the same things, to do meaningful work and live a good, safe life. And now I want to take this opportunity to thank RBC for generously supporting this podcast series as presenting sponsor. RBC has been an advocate of True Patriot Love since 2010 and has committed over $1 million to support Canada's military members, veterans, and their families. Thank you, RBC. Our guest today is Warrant Officer Avril Jeannot Baptiste Jones. Avril was born and raised on the Caribbean island of Dominica and immigrated to Canada at a young age. Nearly two decades later in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Avril joined the Canadian Armed Forces as a reservist. Avril has risen through the ranks and held roles with a wide array of teams in communities across the country, including the Canadian Forces Station in Alert Nunavut, CFB Kingston, and the Land Forces Central Headquarters in Toronto. She has also completed two deployments and is a recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. After 25 years of service, in 2017, Avril retired from the Army and transitioned into the private sector. She soon found herself looking to make her way back to the Army and is now a reservist. Today, we reach her in Milton, Ontario, having just recently returned from a deployment in Kuwait. And for our listeners, please note, we recorded this interview during the pandemic when Wi-Fi signals were at their limits. So we did this interview in a couple of takes, and you may notice that there's a difference in sound quality in some clips. Avril, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much for joining us. You've had a lengthy and prestigious career serving in the military in an administrative and finance capacity, an area I personally haven't heard very much about when it comes to our armed forces, so I'm thrilled to learn more about your story. And to get us started, I'm hoping you can tell us uh, a bit about what you're doing now. Currently, I am in the uh, primary reserves, but prior to that, I had a full career in the regular force and until I, I uh, retired in December of 2017. So I, I actually, I left for an opportunity. I thought, you know, I'm young enough. I've had all this wealth of knowledge and experience from the military. So why not try something else? You know, I went on to other jobs in the, in the private sector until last uh, May. I re-enrolled as a reservist, which is part-time, because I said, you know, I, I have a lot to give. I still have a lot to give. And as soon as I joined, I actually was offered a, a deployment. So I went to Kuwait and I came back at the end of January of this year. And what kind of work were you doing in Kuwait? Um, I did ops. So basically I was in charge of intake, positioning of every single person coming in and leaving Operation Impact. So that's Kuwait, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon. That sounds like a lot to oversee. Can you give us a sense of what it was like for you? Really take us there? For me, putting the uniform back on, it felt so right that I needed to do this again and to continue to do this. So on the deployment aspect, it was great. 
because from my deployment to Afghanistan to now, I was in a totally different role because from 2005 and now we're 2020, being in, in uh, Kuwait as the um, J1-3 superintendent clerk, I had more responsibilities and it felt rewarding. All the years that I've trained and gained experience, I get to put it into practice. So it felt really good. And it was the first time I was actually in a, in a position like that. I've been chief clerks before, but as a J1-2 superintendent clerk, you called the shots. So I had to do a lot of research, although it was long hours, you know, because Kuwait is eight hours ahead of Canada. So I had to stay up late on Canadian times to get things done. And although it was late nights, it felt great. And earlier in your career, was this something that you had aspired to, achieving a more senior role while on deployment? Well, see, I, I had a senior position, but it's the deployments I always wanted to do. I mean, I was asking for deployments from 2014, 20, yeah, 2014. I was asking for deployments, even prior to that, I was asking for deployments all through. But in our occupation, you're so important, well, they tell you. <laughs> that we cannot afford we can't afford to let you go for that period of time which is training and an actual deployment and they leave that's a long time can you give us a sense of the time commitment that you're talking about here so say you train you go deploy with a battle group so that could involve three months of training right and then pre-deployment leave so let's let's say three months altogether, right there's six months of deployment sometimes seven so that's already 10 months. And then you have post-deployment leave. So technically you could be gone for one year. So that's one year without having the main person in charge of administration. And a lot of units don't do it. This is something I always wanted to do. So it's not about the, um, the responsibility or the higher role. It was more, I want to deploy, you know, so the, the, minute I joined the reserves, it was, oh, well, the opportunity for deployments are endless now. So you actually had to re-enlist as a reservist in order to achieve your goal of deploying. I'm so glad that it actually worked out for you. And how did you maintain your purpose and your motivation while repeatedly being denied something that you were working so hard for and that you had set up as a goal for yourself? It's, 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 it's deep why I stayed motivated. I mean, I was, I, was, I was born in the Caribbean. I grew up in a time of, of colorisms and, and, and color lines, as in how dark you are or how light you are, you know, that kind of thing. What's your last name? Who do you know in, in, in positions of, of influence? It was, it was that type of thing. So when, when I came to Canada as a, as a young girl, suddenly it was a level playing field. Everyone had the opportunity to to succeed. I came to Canada, then I joined the military, and it was like, oh, well, it's not the color of your skin. If you have it to succeed, you will succeed. If you work hard, you will succeed. So to keep me motivated, hey, you know, it was like, there's people out there that have it worse, that don't even have an opportunity to have a full-time job. I, I kind of see it as ungrateful to a country that gave me so much, so. I was just going to keep asking until they got tired of me. 
you know, I find it so impressive and inspirational that you were able to take that position and still maintain your motivation and determination while you waited for that opportunity to arise. So let's take a step back now. Can you tell us a bit about growing up and coming to Canada? We'd love to hear your origin story. Can you tell us how it all began for you? Well, I moved to Canada in uh, 1986, but my dad lived in Canada since I was a year old. So I was born in Dominica. Dominica is a small island in the Caribbean in between Martinique and Guadeloupe. In 1978, he sponsored me. So I came to Canada originally in 1978, but then I was eight years old already. I had a bond with my mother. My mother was a single mom. She just had the two of us, my brother and I. And I, I missed my mother. I, I was really having a hard time with my new life. And then one day my dad, you know, talked to my mother and say, I, I don't think she's enjoying this. And he, she said, yes, just send her back. And then uh, that was it. I went back to Dominica and I attribute my life, who I am today for those eight years. Those eight years made me. Can you expand on that for us? How exactly did they make you? I spent those years growing up, I became a woman with a mother to guide me in Dominica. My mother taught me the morals and values, the telling the truth, being honest with people, you know, working hard for what you want. Those eight years built on what I am today. And in 1986, when it was time to go again, now I believe in my heart, I was equipped to face the world. It's so fortunate that you were able to get a redo for this decision that your parents had made that ultimately wasn't right for you. I loved what you call it, a redo. It, it was indeed a redo. It was a redo. The other danger was coming back to Canada as a teenager. You become a statistic. Coming from the island, there's so much life, so much things, so much influence. I could have fell back. I could have fallen into any one of these negative statistics, but because of the groundwork my mother laid, you have a chance now to make something amazing out of yourself. And that's what I did. I'm Catherine Rusk. Captain Nicola Goddard was my sister, and I'd like to make a request. Military service can bring great challenges and sacrifices. Women in particular can face unique issues. Help True Patriot Love and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund support Canada's servicewomen, veteran women, and their families. True Patriot Love Foundation is a national organization that supports the military and veteran community by funding critical programs across the country. Please consider donating today towards their mission at tplgoddardfund.com. No donation is too small. On behalf of my family and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, we thank you for your support. This episode is sponsored by Susan MacArthur and Mackenzie Investments. Mackenzie has been a proud supporter of True Patriot Love since 2010, and we thank them for sponsoring today's episode. So you're back in Canada and you're far better prepared to make a life here. It sounds like you were very determined as well. And, and so how did this do-over end up playing out for you? Four years after being in, in Toronto, I... I had to go to Winnipeg. I, I guess my time in Toronto had come to an end. I, I was told I was a liability. I was told I was good for nothing. I was told that 
I need to go get some hard work to do. It, it, it was disappointing, but I saw Winnipeg as a little bit of a light. So I went and got to Winnipeg and uh, I, made, I made friends. I, I got a part-time job. I, and a year after being with the, a rel the relative in Winnipeg, I, uh, I moved out on my own because the negativity carried on. There was, I came with a, a cloud of negative that I guess to some people I, I needed to be fixed and moved out on my own. I had nothing but my clothes, but I was happy. But in that I was still, I was searching for, for what I wanted to do with my life. What an adventure for a young person and good for you for taking control of your situation and taking charge of your life. So now that you have your own apartment, you're starting to make friends, how did you find your way to the military? I had a friend in the US military, the Air Force, and he says, hey, why don't you try the military? I'm like, the military, me, oh. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm, I can measure up to what a female in the military you know, is like, say, I, I've seen the movies, I've seen pictures. I am not that. I am not the picture of what a female in the military is. I said, I like dresses and high heels and, and purses. And I'd like to look pretty. I like to look girly. I like to be girly. That's not a soldier. So we go to um, the base in North Dakota. And then uh, it was Grand Force Air Force Base. And I would see females in the military, Air Force. I'm like, okay, I'll see them and I'll picture myself in uniform too. I'm like, well, she's kind of girly like me. And yeah, okay, okay. So I went to the recruiting center then. Walked into the recruiting center. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, you know, did the application. But then I went to the recruiting center looking for someone that looked like me. I was looking for a black woman with, with natural hair or anything, light skin, dark skin, it didn't matter. I just wanted to see, I just wanted to see a black woman, somebody, a black person, somebody of color, just so I could feel a, a little bit of, okay, acceptance of some sort. So on my way home, I took, I was taking the bus away back to my apartment and there's across the street and there's a girl standing at the bus stop in an Air Force uniform. And I was like, I ran to talk. I'm like, oh, I, you, you're in the military? She's like, yeah, I'm in the reserves. I'm like, oh, wow. So um, tell me what it's like. And a bus is coming. And she's like, oh, it's great. I said, how do they treat you as a black girl? And she had hair like me and everything. She's like, no, it's great. So that was my confirmation. I'm like, boldly, I went in and everything. So she was in the Air Force. My friend in the U.S. is in the Air Force. So I'm going, I'm like, Air Force. That's all I know, right? Air Force. I'm going to join the Air Force. So the day comes, I'm picking, I picked my uniform, my elements, going to be air. And then this girl comes out from, from behind the desk. Her pants are like floods. Her boots are kind of showing. You see a little bit of her socks. I was like, oh, okay. Is it? Is that it? And then this guy comes out from behind the counter, a camouflage jacket. He has a belt around the waist and everything is nice and tight and fitted, you know. I was like, what's this one? He's like, oh, that's the army. I'm like, ooh, well, I think I want that one. So that's why I'm in the army. 
I have to admit, Avril, I'm a bit surprised to hear that you chose your element based on fashion, but thank you for being honest with us. Yeah. So now that you have joined the military, how did basic training go and how did your career evolve once you made it through? So joining the military was the best decision I've ever made. I, I have accomplished so much. I, I am respected in my community, in the Black community and in the Caribbean community. Day one, when I joined the military, I, I joined in 1993. I, I had a hard time. I thought I was going to quit because I joined at the time where they swore at you. They made fun of your accent. They made fun of everything. I mean, we had, a, I had an incident where we had gone to the gas hut and do the decontamination and you have to decontaminate with the thing back in the day called fullest earth so i had the typical black hair black girl natural hair you know it's thick in texture i cannot brush that out of my hair well i got in trouble well you're supposed to just brush this off and i said to him well well master corporal it can't come out of my hair like that i got in trouble for talking back yes that was called talking back. But that still didn't deter me. Uh, I mean, in, in retrospect, you know, it was, yeah, you know, they, they break you down to build you up. And yes, they do. They built, they built me up. And I got to a point where I said, I can't take this anymore. I don't think I want to do this. But there was an instructor that took me aside. He says, Avril, you were, you were strong. You can do this. He said, have the mental strength to do this probably more mental strength than all these girls i've seen you i observe you i never hear you complain about anything but you need to believe in you put your shoulders back head back you know can do this and that day i never looked back and i graduated and yes on graduation day I was one of three left to two left females. That is really impressive that you had the fortitude to, to stay with it. Uh, do you have any advice for, I don't know, for, for young women who might be in a similar position now that you were in then, low self-confidence, trying to figure out what their life is going to look like and having to do so on their own? My advice to any young, any young girl is don't compare yourself to any other, any other person. Your journey is different. All, everyone's journey is different. We all cut from a different cloth. We all not meant to be lawyers and doctors. All right, so you've made it through training, you're feeling better, you're really starting to develop as a leader and have self-confidence. What was next for you? Now I'm in, I'm get, I got posted to, to, um, to Kingston. So now I'm in the regular force. I'm still a private. Um, uh, we were finance and admin background, um, occupations then, so I'm finance. It was great. I made friends. I had friends, but I was still, I was a very shy child. Quiet, not out there. I was, I was seen and not heard. I was that person, you know? You're saying, hey, Avril, we, we training, da-da-da. Okay, I'm doing my thing. And... I had a sergeant one day and she's like, you know, Avril, these girls are asking you to go out because they want to be your friend. 
you shouldn't always say no. At least try to just just say one yes once in a while. And I was like, okay. She and then she's like, you see, Jane, Jane just wants to be your friend. She actually came to me and say, you know, Sergeant, I I, I just want to be her friend, and she doesn't want to be my friend. And I told, her, I said, no, I'm I'm just shy. And she's like, you, she saw me. She's like, you're such a nice person. Just take that one step once and say yes. And then Jane asked me again, and I said yes. And Jane and I, Jane was my maid of honor at my wedding in 2007. I, I have to admit, it's a little bit of a shock to hear that you were so shy that you wouldn't even go yeah. out with a girlfriend um, yeah. to, to get to know each other. When I see you now, like you, you've, you've obviously undergone an incredible transformation over the course yeah. of your life. I have. Can you tell us a little bit about how the military, your time in the military, was that a big part of your transformation? Yes. The, the military was the part of my transformation. The military equips you to, to be a leader. You know, as a private, it starts with talking to your corporal or your master corporal or your, or your sergeant. So with that, you gain confidence. So the military instill confidence in me to just be me it to just it, it allowed me to be me i can sit back and close my eyes and and just experience the growth from from a private not even wanting to to speak up and say yes loud enough to suddenly having people that work for me to to now giving them direction so they can give their people direction to go into theater and and suddenly having you know, to report, send reports through your bosses to a task force commander and a task force chief warrant officer. So yes, I attribute the military for my growth, confidence, you know. And for women who might be experiencing similar challenges at the beginning of their career, you know, perhaps they're really shy or have low confidence, what advice would you have for them uh, in relation to the massive transformation that you've undergone over the course of your professional career? I say, I wasn't built in a day. I would tell them my story and tell them the things that I did to allow me to grow into who I am today. I love that, Avril. I wasn't built in a day. I think that's a valuable lesson for all of us to remember when we put pressure on ourselves to achieve our goals and to improve ourselves. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending time with the podcast today. You've been so generous with your stories and your time. I know that I have personally been very inspired by them, and I hope that our audience has as well. Thank you. My pleasure. And on the next episode of For Her Country, I speak with Sergeant Jerry Ann Davison, who shares a few of the personal and leadership lessons she learned on her many deployments, including her experience training Jordan's first female military troop. A lot of things in the military can be black and white, so you had to add some gray in there. One of one of my favorite moments and kind of a turning point was one of the girls had stuff going on at home and so i pulled her up and i asked what was wrong she started crying so i grabbed one of her friends i was like promise the guy five minutes do whatever you got to do and the sergeants there couldn't understand it they're like no she's got to do this no promise the guy give her time 
And then she came back, she was paying attention. Everything was exactly how it needed to be. She just needed a moment. Giving them those little moments helped uh, build more of a bond to help accomplish what needed to be accomplished. For Her Country is hosted by me, Shannon Busta. It is written and produced by me and Katrina Bolak. Our music is by Whiskey Wolf and Oceanic Piano. A special thank you to Catherine Rusk and the Goddard family and the team at True Patriot Love for their support throughout this project. And thank you to our series sponsor, RBC, and our episode sponsor, Susan MacArthur and Mackenzie Investments. The letter shared in this episode is from the biography Canada's Daughter, written by Sally Goddard. You can find it on Amazon. It was read by Anna Maximew. This project was produced with the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. True Patriot Love is Canada's leading organization that supports military members and their families. It administers the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, which was started by the Goddard family to support women in the military in honor of Nicola. To learn more about this podcast and the great work of this organization, please visit forhercountry.ca and consider donating if you can. And if you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.